Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Brian Gordon is going to be our guest on Where Should I Invest today? My name is Sarah Larby, and we have Brian Gordon, who's going to be speaking about pivoting and uh, how he started. He's been investing for the last 12 years. We're talking a little bit about private lending. We talk a little bit about building your power team, opportunities uh, in the markets, um, and much, much more. So I hope you guys enjoy today's podcast with Brian Gordon. We are also hosting monthly events. If you don't know, we we branded a group called Investors and Entrepreneurs of Canada, and we host monthly events in Burlington at Hagerty's Social and Garage, which I am a member of. And our next event, so every other month, we actually do speed networking. And then every other month, we do roundtable discussions and content. So November is going to be our speed networking. That is November 16th. And then in December 14th, we are hosting an event about scaling and growing and starting a small business. So if you want to find ways to make additional sources of income, this is going to be a great roundtable discussion for that. If you want tickets for our live events, these are in person. Go to midtermrentalproperties.com and then go to the events section and our events should all be listed there. They're about 25, I believe 25 or 24.99 to join. And they're usually from like 7 p.m. to about 9, 9.30. So I hope you guys can make it out. I know a few of you that have been listening to the podcast have come out and hope to, to see many more of you. So midtermrentalproperties.com. Go to the events section. And we are now branding as Investors and Entrepreneurs of Canada for that group that meets every single month. So on that note, I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And if you ever have any questions, send me an email, sarah at sarahlarby.com. Now, let's take a moment to hear from Dahlia Barsoom at Streetwise Mortgages on what is new, what is this week's tip of the week. Dahlia, over to you. Hi. If you currently have a mortgage with an advanceable line of credit component with any of the big banks, such as the Step Mortgage with Scotiabank, the Whole Power Plan with CIBC, the RBC Home Line Plan, BMO's Home Owner Ready Line, or the National Bank all-in-one, then this message is for you. By now, you would have received a letter from your bank outlining upcoming changes to the Advanceable Mortgage products that will take effect on November the 1st. But before I get into the details of the letter and how this change impacts you, I'd like to go through a quick refresher of what an Advanceable Mortgage is. Essentially, an advanceable mortgage combines a mortgage with a line of credit, which acts like a home equity line of credit, referred to as a HELOC. And with the banks, a HELOC or a line of credit cannot exceed 65% of the value, but between the mortgage and the line of credit, together they can get up to 80% of the home value at the time the loan was approved. This 80% is referred to as the global limit. And as you make payments towards your mortgage, the credit limit on the line would increase in an amount equal to the principal that you're paying down on the mortgage. When you make a mortgage payment, essentially, you uh, basically have two components. It's split into two components. There is 
principal pay down and there is an interest component. So let's take an example. Let's say that your mortgage payment is $1,000 and out of that $1,000, $700 goes towards paying down your principal and $300 goes towards paying down the interest. Now, the $700 is what I'm referring to here. That is the amount of principal pay down that would increase the limit on the line of credit by an equivalent amount if you have an advanceable mortgage product. So you're essentially reaccessing what you've paid down on the mortgage through the line of credit. And this is a great feature that many homeowners and investors alike enjoy. Now, 15 months ago, OSFI, the financial services regulator, introduced a new role to basically limit how consumers or borrowers with advanceable mortgages can reborrow any paid down principal. And basically what they want is they want, they don't want anybody to re-borrow money above 65% of the value of the property at the time the loan was approved. This change is going to take effect on November the 1st for the big six banks and uh, January the 1st for most other federally regulated lenders. OSPI expects that any and all lending above 65% of the loan-to-value, which cannot exceed 80%, will be both amortizing and non-advanceable. That's what the regulator says. Also, the principal payments applied to the portion above the 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall authorized limit or the global limit until that global limit reduces to 65%. Okay. I had to read this 20 times before I understood what this really means. It was easier for me to actually understand Spanish than to understand what this is all about. So let me walk you through what it means through an example. Recently, I received my Scotia Step uh, letter informing me of the change. I'm not going to read it all, but will highlight the key paragraph that says the following. Beginning November 2023 your step global limit will gradually reduce to 65% over the next 25 years. This will take effect through monthly reductions of $157 to your step global limit. Now, let's get into the translation of what that really means. Consider a case where a borrower has a million dollars house in a combined global limit of mortgages and line of credits as follows. Mortgage component number one is at $150,000. Mortgage component number two is at $250,000. And the client has a $400,000 revolving line of credit. So altogether, we're at 80%. The rule essentially says the following. And here's the key concept. The key concept is that the principal payments applied to any portion above 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall global limit until this overall limit shrinks to 65%. In this example, mortgage number two of $250,000 along with the line of credit of $400,000 make up 65% of the value of the house, which is a million dollars. So any dollars you pay down on mortgage component number one 
which is the portion representing more than the 65%. Under the old rules, it used to advance over to the line, but under the new rules, will no longer advance over to the line. And instead, that will gradually shrink your borrowing ability from recycling within that 80% box to eventually, you know, getting to a 65% over time. So that's the idea here. They're trying to limit how much money you can recycle within that 80%. So that gradually over time, that amount shrinks to 65% is what this really says. In the Scotia example that I shared with you earlier, the $157 that I read in the letter is basically that gradual monthly reduction in the global limit. It is not something that I'm going to pay out for, you know, myself. Instead, as I pay down the mortgage, instead of being able to re-access that 157 on the line of credit, it will now go towards shrinking the overall global limit from 80% to 65%. So here's the thing. This amount will differ from one client to another. It will differ from one bank to another. But ultimately, the end game is the same for everybody who has this product. Borrowers will end up with readvisable mortgages that have a global limit that cannot exceed 65% over time. And if they're starting at 80%, over time, that number will go down to 65%. And the difference is that some lenders will get you there uh, more, you know, like faster than some other lenders. So if you're re-advanceable mortgage, if you got an advanceable mortgage before September 15th, 2012, that's when this B20 regulation took effect, that product will be grandfathered. You don't have to write. So none of what I'm talking about here applies to you. But everyone who set up their product past that deadline will be impacted. So if you decide to refinance today and you qualify for an 80% with a mortgage and a HELOC, yes, you're going to start at 80%, but over time, again, this will bring you to the 65%. So this rule applies for new advanceable mortgages that are being set up as we speak. If you have received this letter from your bank and you would like to explore new options to continue to access capital, reach out to my team at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Awesome. Great content, guys. Reach out to Streetwise Mortgages for additional information. Now let's bring in Brian. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Sarah, how are you doing? Good, good. I uh, we've attended many networking events together. I know you've you've also been a, a longtime supporter of many of the things that we do, and I wanted to bring you on because you also have an incredible story. You're also a real estate investor, very successful one as well. Just to share your story and some insights and uh, and things that you're seeing. So before we get started, why don't you give us a, a thirty thousand foot view of who Brian Gordon is? Sure, sure. So first off, thanks for having me on. So I purchased my first investment property probably about 12 years ago. And like most investors, I kind of fell into it. And from there, I would say I really became an investor probably about maybe six or seven years ago. And really what I mean by that is that's when I really was intentional. That's when I joined real estate groups and 
you know, trying to connect with like-minded people and really focused on market fundamentals versus just, you know, trying to invest, right? Really, mm-hmm. again, being thoughtful and, and putting a system behind what I was doing. And, you know, again, like many investors, I started with duplexes, moved to triplexes. I have some short-term rentals and I've just, I'm in a process of transitioning now to multifamily. So it's been an amazing time. You know, we're pretty turbulent right now, but still a lot of opportunities. So that's a little awesome. bit about me. Awesome. Yeah. 12 years ago, I think we almost started together. I think I, I'm at 13, 13 years as well. So, you know, back then things were quite different than they were today, but you know, there's challenges and there's opportunities in, in every market cycle. And 20 years from now, even today will seem like a, a, you know, another great opportunity because it is about time in the market. We talked about, you know, duplexes, triplexes, starting and multifamily. Do you think that there is a path that an investor might want to take or, you know, or is it just going to be based on where we're at right now with the economy and what makes sense in today's world? But and the reason I'm asking is oftentimes people will start with the smaller things and then they get into bigger deals over time. Yeah. So great question. So first off, I think with most investors, I tell, you know, newbies that you really want to think about, you know, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And then build your strategy around that. But think to your latter comment, you know, you have to obviously take into consideration where the market is, right? What worked 18 months ago definitely doesn't work now in many cases. So it has to be really, I think, a combination of what are your goals and what currently works in the market that you're thinking about. Yeah, Because again, I started with duplex conversions, right? You know, I banged out several and they just don't work in my market right now, right? So you need to pivot. Absolutely. Pivoting is is definitely up there with what we need to do as the economy. The rates are high. The economy is a little bit turbulent. This government's questionable. You know, there's lots of different moving parts. You know, with somebody that's been around for 12 years, I mean, you've probably seen some ups and downs. Like this is probably, you know, the, a different market cycle than maybe you and I have seen in our last 12 or 13 years. But we've still seen some ups and downs. And so what challenges are you facing in your investing journey in a down or unpredictable market like we're in today that maybe other people are also facing and what insights can you provide? Sure. So I think one of the things that I keep hearing is interest rates, right? We know interest rates have just about tripled within 12 to 18 months. And even though I thought I expected interest rates to increase, but not nearly to the extent that it did, nor at the speed that it did. So, you know, to some degree, I won't say I was unprepared, but I was definitely not expecting this. Uh, so some of my challenges right now are that, you know, some of my properties aren't cash flowing the way they were. Um, some of them are in a negative cash flow situation. So what I've been doing over the past six to eight months is really looking at, you know, again, what are my goals? What properties still fit into my portfolio and my long-term goals? And I sold one of my properties, actually that same property I chatted about that I purchased 12 years ago it was an older condo in Scarborough. And it, it, it was a worst property in my portfolio. So a situation came up and I was able to sell it. So really, again, looking hard at my portfolio, what makes sense? What should I keep? Where can I increase revenue? Where can I decrease expenses? And really just focus on the things that I can control and not watch the news. I find the news is very depressing and you can't control what happens out there. So really, again, focusing on, you know, where you can add value in your own portfolio. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a great point and very valuable insight as well. And, you know, decreasing expenses and expenses or increasing the income. Have you pivoted to any shorter term rental strategies like midterms, short terms? Or are you going into student rentals? Like what are you doing from an income standpoint 
that you found has worked well for you? So I'm in the process of actually turning over two of my tenants. So I'm going to renovate the units and one of them will be a short-term rental. And depending on how that one does, I'll probably do the same with the other one. So I know that will increase cash flow because it's in a great location. It's uptown Toronto at Young and Finch. So I know it will do well, at least speaking with a couple of people told me that it will do very well as a short-term rental. So I'm looking at that. Like I said, I offloaded one of my properties and I'm also fortunate or unfortunate. I, I do have a full-time job and so I do have a pretty good income. So that also helps with cash flow. But again, really just looking at opportunities. I'm also raising capital as well. I do have access to home equity line of credits and so on, but I still want to be very conservative. So I'm raising funds as well. So just doing a little bit of everything to make sure that, you know, not only can I hopefully thrive over the next 18 months, but take advantage of some opportunities as well. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, definitely the prices are better. The terms are better negotiating with sellers that are more motivated. That was not something that we experienced, right? Two years ago when interest rates were low at 2%, 2.5%. I remember, you know, if anybody was selling something, like it would be gone in multiple offers with no conditions. And I think a lot of people got in over their heads with those types of deals and, and now are, are trying to scramble because, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people thought that everything was just going to keep going up and up. And I think over time, in the very long, you know, long term, it will. But from a short term standpoint, you know, a lot of people bought not looking at cash flow, looking at equity and expecting that to, to be their ticket to freedom. And it's, it, to me, it's a combination, it's a combination of equity and a combination of cash flow. And, you know, we see that the cash flow has dropped tremendously for everybody, everybody that's had a portfolio. But I also, like you mentioned, I think there's some great opportunity to buy today that we didn't have two years ago. What are some of your goals from an acquisition standpoint? So right now I'm still in my growth phase. My goal is to ultimately essentially do what you did in five years is to quit my full-time job and just transition to real estate full-time. I really don't want to work more than 20 hours a week. And so that is what my long-term goal is, which is one of the reasons why I also started transitioning to multifamily. I mean, among other reasons, but mm -hmm. so that's the long-term or I should say midterm goal is to quit my day job and just focus on real estate hundred percent. And with yeah. that, I think a combination of multifamily and, you know, flips will, will get me there. And private lending. I love private lending. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How do you decide, like, you know, how much you're going to go into from a private lending standpoint, like a percentage of your portfolio? Or is it based on, you know, if you have something in the works or not? Like, because I mean, a lot of people are also sitting on cash, right? And they're like, this inflation is eating away the cash that's just sitting in the bank. And sometimes private lending is a solution or part of the overall portfolio. Like, what are your thoughts on how to go about that? So it's a great question. And I really took, I've been lending my funds for maybe seven or eight years, right? Again, I have a day job. I've had multiple jobs. So I lend registered funds. And I had a chat with actually Gary Hibbert last year at your event at the Have a Cake and Eat It too. And he told me how he essentially pivoted to private lending. So I started asking him questions about, you know, how much of his portfolio is made up of private lending and so on. And that really got me thinking that I should really focus, not really, I shouldn't say focus, but at least make sure that private lending is a portion of my overall income. And so my goal is to have 25% of my cash flow come from private lending, right? For everyone is going to be a little different, but mm -hmm. that's the plan for me. 
Okay. And you mentioned registered funds. So these are like tax-free savings accounts, RSPs, RESPs. And if you have a full-time job, I'm not going to make assumptions, but when I used to have a full-time job, they used to match. So you would get a match up to a certain percentage. Some good companies do that now. And that's, you know, a way to build up your RSPs as an example. But, you know, maybe share some insights on that for, with us, sure. if you don't mind. Sure. So because, again, I've had, I've been working for the past 20 years. When I've left some of my previous employers, I have a choice to either keep the RSPs with the employer or take it with me. And I've always opted to take it with me and then it converted to what's called a Lira, a locked in registered account. So I would just take the account, move it to my own institution, move it over to Olympia Trust, who is basically the trustee, and then you can lend. Canadian law allows you to put housing or to lend funds on housing through an RSP. So, you know, again, I've been doing that for a number of years and I always use my registered funds because my own fund, whether it's a HELOC or again, just my own personal funds, I will use that to invest in my own deals, mm -hmm. but you can invest your own registered funds in your own deal. So I just, I use that to, to lend. Yeah, absolutely. So Olympia Trust, there used to be another company called Community Trust, I believe it was called, and they were just Ontario based and they actually are no longer in that business. So I think for Ontario, it is just Olympia Trust and there might be like a Western. Canadian Western trust. Bank as well. Yeah, in the, you know, in Western Canada. But I think most people use Olympia Trust. And I'll tell you, banks will not tell you about this. More uh, your, your financial advisor will probably not tell you about this because they make money from commissions of you investing into their funds. So it is important to educate yourself. And, you know, listening to this, you're definitely on the right track. People are on the right track doing that. But that's not something that is necessarily common knowledge that you could actually take registered funds, move them over to a company called Olympia Trust, and then loan them out as a first or second mortgage. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. And, you know, after speaking to many investors, seasoned investors like yourself, like Gary, like, you know, many others, I've, you know, I've asked them, how did you transition to full-time employment? And yes, some of them will say, you know, they've managed to have create cash flow through their properties. But a lot of them also, portion of their cash flow comes from private lending. And that's kind of when the light bulb went off for me about a year or so ago. And so I think it's really important to your point, educate yourself on, you know, a number of different strategies. You know, you really shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. In my opinion, I love real estate, real estate's, you know, the key to my wealth, but also look at other options to diversify your income. And again, for me, after real estate, it's private lending. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Now, the only thing I would just say with like, if you've got registered funds is that they had like the, the cash flow, right? Like, or correct me if I'm wrong, but the cash flow from RSPs goes back into your RSP. So it's not like you can cash it out. I mean, you could, but you're going to be taxed on it, right? So if you're looking to keep it in the RSP, then that cash flow payout from lending it to somebody else, you can't lend it to yourself or a relative that's blood or marriage related. It's got to be arm's length. But that cash flow has to go back into the RSP. Exactly, exactly. And that's why, again, too, it depends on, you really need to think about what are your goals. So again, for me, yeah. I work full-time, my wife works full-time, so we don't need the cash. So mm -hmm. we're fine having all that, all the income from the private mortgage go right back into our RSP. And then, you know, when I hit 50 or 55, I can start withdrawing from it. So until then, it's just compounding and I can make money, you know, doing mm -hmm. that. But to your point, you're right. You ideally don't want to pull out the funds now, especially if you have another job because you'll get taxed, you know, again. If, if you're in a high paying job, you'll be really taxed in a really high yeah. tax bracket. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you can still, you know, you can still lend funds outside of an RSP or outside of a registered funds and, you know, get that cash flow right away. 
Mm-hmm. Again, it just really depends on what, you know, what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve for sure. Yeah. And I think there's still a way to do it with like your tax savings accounts. And that's like a little bit different than your RSP and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, look, it's a great opportunity. Back in the day when community trust was there, I, I used them. But it's, you know, I think Olympia Trust is a great company. It's just you've got you've to do your research on that. And then the beauty of it is like you can create the terms. You can create your rates that you want. You can create, you know, the time you want to lend it out for. I mean, obviously you can loan it through a company and a mortgage broker that does this, but you could also do it privately through lawyers, um, through community trust. So there's lots of ways that you could do that. So you're mentioning that you guys are both working full time. How do you manage real estate, your portfolio, your acquisitions, the property management and full time work? So I'm fortunate enough that my days, I'm a senior manager, I won't say for which company, but I'm a senior manager for a company and I'm fortunate enough to be pretty flexible, but it's still pretty demanding. So because I'm still in my growth phase as well, and I do have two kids, all of my properties except one, I have a property manager, so I outsource property management. So that frees up a ton of time. And then that allows me to focus on, you know, the kids, my full-time job, as well as acquisitions. So that, again, that really frees up my time. So I'm able to spend the bulk of my time growing and obviously hanging out with the kids. So more on the acquisition side versus the operations and being bogged down by the, the day-to-day stuff. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's not a perfect formula because sure, you could probably, or I could probably manage my properties better. But again, I'm okay suffering a little bit, which will allow me to grow in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's pros and cons, right? And you got to do what makes sense for you at, at the time that you're, you know, you're in it. And you know, property management, I mean, there's pros and cons, right, to self-managing and or hiring a property manager. And I think at some point, though, when you have many units, whether you hire it out or you hire it in, right, because internally you could also hire somebody to, to manage that, you're probably not going to be doing it by yourself with multiple, multiple units. Like, I think if you've got, you know, 10, 20, it's still manageable. But I think, you know, at some point, if, if you're really scaling and you're going into bigger multifamily, you're going to want to hire it out to somebody that's capable, that has done it and doing it full time, or you're going to want to maybe hire an admin slash, you know, operations person for your company slash property manager, assistant, whatever you call them to, to help with that piece. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a moment and introduce you to one of my favorite paralegals, Andrew Chubetta. With over a combined decade of experience, Caveat LLP provides legal assistance for real estate investors and entrepreneurs, primarily practicing in the areas of landlord and tenant law. Caveat LLP is your one-stop shop when dealing with all of your tenant issues. Give them a call for a free consultation at 289-339-1311. That is Caveat LLP. Andrew Chubetta has been instrumental in helping me as a landlord and as a real estate investor, and I'm sure he can help you as well. Again, that's 289-339-1311. And now back to the show. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I really don't like the property management business, right? So for me, from a, I'm, a, I'm a relationship person. So, I mean, I could do the job, but it's not the part where I want to spend my time. I also mm-hmm. don't enjoy it. I really love the numbers, the acquisition, the relationships with brokers and you know, events and so on. So I prefer to focus my time on that as well. So 12 years 
is a long time in the grand scheme of things, because I think a lot of people that I speak to anyways have started in the last five years. And, you know, 12 years is, is staying power. 12 years, I think, is you get a lot of ups and you get a lot of downs along the way. But what made you originally decide to go into real estate back then? Oh, I, for whatever reason, maybe it's through my mom or my, my, my mom and dad, you know, they always talked about real estate, that real estate's important, you need to buy real estate. And at a really young age, I, you know, always would watch those MLS. They had those back then. I'm looking to age myself a little bit, but on TV, the real estate agents would advertise on TV and you would see the listings and I would stay up late at night watching the listings. And you know, so corny, but I always knew, I guess, again, through my mom, that real estate was the key. At the time, I didn't know how or what I needed to do, but I knew it was the key. So, you know, I purchased my first home at 20 or 21, and I just kept on growing from there. And, and it's worked out obviously really well. The market's been very kind to everyone, except for the mm -hmm. past 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's really what gave me that push and that, that confidence to get into real estate. Many investors' parents, I feel, are like the opposite, right? They say, oh my God, you're going to like get calls at three in the morning. You're going to have the tenants that trash your house or like, what are you crazy? Like you're going to lose all your, all, and it's interesting because I mean, my, like, like you, my parents were always very supportive. They're not investors per se, but when I'm like, Hey, I want to buy some properties or like, that's awesome. Which I was very lucky to have that support. Were, were your parents entrepreneurs? Were they investors? Like what made them really push you and say, this is a great opportunity? They weren't entrepreneurial. Well, my mom's actually an entrepreneur now. She retired. She was a nurse. She retired. And then she started an Airbnb and an entertainment business in Jamaica. But so she always had, I guess, that entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> and then just knowing that there was a lot of opportunity and, a, I guess, a way to grow wealth in Canada, that real estate was that opportunity. So I guess, again, I guess it's a combination of her entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, my dad was a bit more risk averse. But yeah, my mom always encouraged us to go for it. And like you like your parents, my parent, my mom has, and dad has always been supportive. Okay. All right. Very cool. I, you know, throughout the years, I know we've had similar timelines in a sense, but throughout the years, you know, our teams or expert teams, right. You kind of tweak along the way. And then you realize the ones that really understand the business mortgage brokers, right. That are, that work for investors versus going directly to the bank or working with realtors that, you know, understand the types of investments. What are some things that you learned along the way from a power team standpoint, or maybe some mistakes or challenges that you had that, you know, changed and tweaked over the years? Sure. So I think outside of doing your market analytics, so what, what market to invest in, what neighborhood, et cetera, your power team is probably the most important part of your real estate business. And I definitely made I won't say a ton of mistakes, but I've made a number of mistakes, especially with my first duplex conversion. I hired a friend who was a contractor and he's never completed a legal secondary suite before. He's done basement apartments and it was an absolute disaster. Project that should have taken two to three months ended up taking about 10 months. And we're talking a simple duplex conversion and it was my first go at it. So it was, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of worrying. And from then I realized that a don't hire your friends or family unless they specialize in that specific area that you need. So a always hire an expert that does whatever you want them to do. So if you're trying to finish a legal basement apartment, they should have completed, you know, maybe five to 10 that year. And ideally even specialize in the market that you want that 
uh, duplex conversion completed in. So, you know, I think the moral of the story is hire an expert that has, that's credible, you know, ideally get some references and don't just hire someone because they're a friend or okay. even don't hire someone just because, you know, they have a big social media following as well, right? Like you really need to do your own homework. Mm-hmm. So somebody that's then starting out or going into an, a new market altogether, like what is like the first step to even trying to figure out who the experts are in that area? I tell people what really changed my life from an investment standpoint is joining a high value real estate investment club. That's where everything really came together for me about six or seven years ago. And once I joined um, that real estate club, I was able to gain knowledge. I was able to network, build relationships with people that were in the industry. So agents, brokers, et cetera. I was able, I learned how to ask the right questions. Cause a lot of times as a rookie, you don't even know what questions to ask. Right. And speaking to people, being around those like-minded people, I was able to, you know, figure out what kind of question should I ask? Who are the major players in the industry? And then, you know, slowly become more comfortable with uh, asking those questions and, and networking. So. For me, I tell all rookies, first thing, join a high value real estate investment club and then start your journey from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great insights and in in advice. So now that we're going into, you know, I think the start of some turbulence, I mean, even though we look at like all the rate increases, I still personally don't think we've seen the rates stay high, what the aftermath will really look like. What do you fearful about, but what are you also excited about? And what are you specifically going to be maybe doing for the next 12 months? So I'm very excited about the opportunities. I've already started seeing them. I'm closing on a, myself and my partner closing on an 11 unit in Brantford next week. And we got, you know, under the, like a 65% VTB, a second. So basically we're going eight up to 85%, right. And that would not have happened two years ago. Right. So there's a ton of opportunities. So we're looking at those opportunities. Again, raising cash and to what you're, you said earlier, making sure that I have the staying power first and foremost, making sure that I'm not over leveraged and then just make sure I have the cash to take advantage of those opportunities down mm-hmm. the road. Cause I, like you, I do think we more or less capped out with interest rate hikes. Sure. We maybe, we might have another one, maybe two, but I think we're more or less at the top, but I don't think most we've really felt the after effects yet. And that probably won't happen for another six to 12 months. So I think there, there's going to be a ton of opportunities. I think so too. I think it's going to be a matter. I mean, I think it's going to be disproportionate to the values of properties along the way too, versus, you know, the stuff that's over a million or the stuff that's, you know, 500 ish and the stuff that's below, I think it'll all be proportionate, but really ultimately I think, and this is just guesstimating, but as people's interest rates are going from like 2% of the fixed rates, the ones that have not investors per se. I mean, maybe some investors are, are in that category, but, you know, uh, people that have these expensive properties that are on fixed incomes that all of a sudden they're going from like $2,000 a month to $4,000 or $5,000 uh, a month of mortgage. Once those rates come through, like, I actually don't know what's going to happen. I think they're going to either have to sell or the banks are going to have to create 40-year amortizations or do something because I don't think they want to repossess the properties. I mean, you know, I know there's different ideas and thoughts that out there, but I think that's when there's going to be some tremendous opportunity. But again, we, d- we don't know how quickly they're going to reduce them or how much more they're going to increase rates. But all I know is right now, I think it's the calm before the storm. 
Yeah, totally agree. Which is why I've been telling a lot of investors, don't wait. You know, if you need to readjust your portfolio, do it now. If you feel that you need to sell and that's your worst case scenario, then sell, but make sure that you have that staying power and don't wait until things get bad before you take action. Yeah. And like you're looking at multifamily yourself. And I think that likely, again, this is just my guess and feel free to challenge it or, you know, or, or add your comments and thoughts. But I think my guess is what's going to make the most sense for the next little bit is going to be utilizing CMHC with multifamily and, you know, potentially doing some conversions of five or more units and being able to use the MLI program that CMHC has. But I think that may be the play that many investors are are going to be considering because there's a little bit more, in my opinion, a little bit more certainty of what that exit might look like. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And what I like about that space too is that there aren't a lot of investors playing in that space, right? You have maybe a handful mm -hmm. that are doing the conversions uh, similar to what you guys are doing right now. So there's less competition, less people are looking for those churches to convert to, you know, 10, 12 units um, versus, you know, your typical detached bungalow, right? Where you have your retail buyer, you have your, your, your beginning investor. So I just think there's a lot of opportunity with that program and, and that space in general. Mm -hmm. Are there other strategies that you're also maybe bullish about in the next coming 12 to 24 months? I also like the Caribbean. So okay. myself and my uh, couple partners, we purchased some land in Jamaica last year nice. and we're going to be developing it next year. And there's just so opportunities. There's a ton of development happening. The uh, economy is doing really well. Tourism is doing extremely well. So I'm taking my first way into to developing. So excited and nervous about that. But I think there's a lot of opportunities as well outside of Canada. Yeah, that is awesome. So can I ask, like, do you have to purchase in full cash or do they have financing options in the Caribbean where you're looking? You do. You can purchase. So you can do both. You can purchase cash, of course, which is what we did. But you can also finance and typically they'll do a 70% loan to value. And they ideally like to see that you have some equity down there. And we have a property down there, a family home that's free and clear. So I can always leverage that and I will leverage that to start the build. But you can you can get financing. Okay. Can I can I ask like from a price point standpoint, like what, you know, I, I guess what you're looking at and just like what that actually looks from like are we talking about hundreds of thousands or like you know, what price point is you know, we're in Jamaica and what price point are people maybe expecting? Sure. So it's between a town called Lucy and Negril. Most people are familiar with Negril, which is about a fifty-five minute uh, ride from the Montego Bay Airport. It's close to three major hotels, so very popular area. The, and the strategy is I'll do a combination of short-term rentals and executive rentals to the uh, senior managers at the hotels. I see. Because, you know, they have more money, they get paid in U.S. dollars, so they have that cash flow to spend a little extra on, on a place that's, you won't be, a place that's, I guess, more luxurious than your average, your average place in Jamaica. So it's $150 a square foot to build. We're going to build four condos and two two-bedroom uh, townhouses. The property is a half an acre, so that city will allow you to only build that many units. But, but yeah, we're super excited, and we're probably looking at around 750000 US dollars. So again, we'll, we'll borrow money from the bank to do that. But from the, from the bank in Jamaica? Yeah, from the bank in Jamaica. So there is, 
I have a relationship with Jamaica National Bank, and I also have a relationship with Scotiabank. They have a huge presence down there as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just about who I'll get the most favorable financing. Well, how much was the land that you purchased? When we bought it, we paid 60000 US and the lot right now, there's a lot beside ours that's selling for about 120000 US. Okay. So we, we were pretty lucky in that we got it at a pretty good time. So what about, you know, finding your team down there? Like, like you have family that helps, helps down there or did you have to make a trip and, you know, connect with people? Like, how did you go about that? So my mom, unfortunately, my mom's very well connected down there. So I, I've been, I was there for the past, I don't know, three times in the past six months meeting with, uh, you know, the local town, the city planner, drafts person, engineers, et cetera. So my mom has been able to basically get all the contacts for me. And then it's, you know, it's just a matter of me interviewing them and asking them the right questions. You know, it's, it's development, but it's more or less the same, but with some nuances. So just really trying to figure out what those nuances are. Uh, just like in most Caribbean countries, things move way slower. So you have mm-hmm. to get used to that. Yeah. But right. yeah, I, I've been lucky because my mom's been able to connect me with 90% of the contacts to, to be able to build my power team. That's awesome. Now, are you going to have her be the feet on the street? Or are you planning to travel there every so often to check up on the progress? Yeah, she'll be the boots on the ground. The property from her house is probably about a seven minute drive. So okay. it's not too bad for her to you know drive there maybe twice a week, take some pictures, videos, send it back. And, you know, I'll continue to go down there quarterly, at least. And again, I'm doing it with two other partners. So we'll take turns going down and, and managing the site. Amazing. So So with the other two partners, like what is your role in that in that business or partnership and, and what do they bring to the table so i'm the only real estate investor out of the group mm-hmm. and so i'm really taking the charge and putting together the team i'm managing the site and i'll probably end up doing 90 percent of the work now the other two investors are related to me and you know it, it's Typically with a project, typically with my first project, that if I don't have experience in, I don't raise money because I want to make sure I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. And so we're, we're doing an equal split right down the middle, one third, one third, one third. And again, I'll probably end up doing 90% of the work, but it's, again, it's my first pro- foray into it. So I, I'm comfortable doing that. Okay. All right. Very cool. Well, it sounds like an exciting project and, you know, from an Airbnb standpoint or a short-term, midterm, let us know when it's ready. I'm sure many people are maybe thinking of taking a little trip, you know, to the Caribbean at some point. Awesome. Will do. Awesome. So the next part of the podcast, Brian, is our lightning round. I'm going to ask you five questions. You're going to give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready to play? Welcome to your midterm tip of the week. Are you often traveling for work? and need a place to stay, but do not have the time or capacity to search endlessly on those online platforms, Midterm Rental Properties has been created to ensure that someone exactly like yourself, who is looking for a quality assured stay, but would like the assistance and a concierge white glove service to obtain this property, gets the service they need. When you sign up with a property through Midterm Rentals, we ensure your stay is all-inclusive from collecting your dry cleaning to setting up a local gym membership to having a private chef deliver your food. For more information on how we can service you at your next Midterm Rental stay, please visit www.midtermrentalproperties.com. Let's do it. Okay, so here's question number one. What is your favorite real estate investing book? 
probably, if I had to say a real estate book, it's probably, I'd say Don Campbell's, I think it's Canadian real estate invest, investor or investment. But I typically read books that are focused around more on mindset and so on. So I'd say my favorite book overall is Think and Grow Rich, but yeah. Nice, nice. I know I, Harry, I think, well, we have Harry as a common connection, but I've been like listening to that, like over <laughs> as yeah. a replay, you know? <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right, number two, not real estate specific necessarily, but do you have a favorite podcast? Yes, I do. Real Estate Espresso Podcast by Victor Manash. Okay, awesome. Is that American, Canadian? Canadian. He's, he's based in Ottawa, but he does a ton of investments in Ottawa and the U.S. And his podcast is typically seven minutes Monday to Friday. And then he does a weekend special where he'll do like 50 minutes. So it's bite size and a ton of high quality information. Okay, very cool. Number three, what do you do for fun? Travel. I love traveling. I have a huge passion for travel. I climbed Kilimanjaro a couple months ago, so I did that. And yeah, I just love adventure traveling. Okay, amazing. Is your wife also on board with all the adventures? Not that type of adventure. She loves traveling, but she's more laid back, you know, the beach and walks and restaurants like I into what I love to eat. But yeah, she's not that adventurous. No worries. That's a big accomplishment. Congrats on that. Thank you. How much training did it take? I trained for about two months, probably should have trained longer, but it was a bit of a last minute decision and, <laughs> but it worked out really well. Like it was best trip for my life. Amazing. Amazing. Number four, if you lost all your money and all your assets, how would you start again? I would, because I have a, you know, a bit of a reputation and credibility, I think it'd be very easy for me to start. I'd start with investing again. I would go straight into multifamily and you know, church conversions and that you know, basically you know, multifamily, commercial, et cetera. Okay, awesome. Final question. If somebody has $50,000, they want to get started in some capacity or another, how would you recommend they spend that 50 grand? First off, again, I would say join a real estate investment group, one that you're comfortable with, one that has high quality content. I would say start there and, you know, potentially get a mentor. But I would say, again, get an understanding of the real estate space build your power team and then potentially bring in partners, et cetera, because $50,000 nowadays won't get you far, but you know, look at getting partners through family, friends, et cetera. Okay. All right. Thanks for playing the lightning round, Brian. Where can people reach out, find out more about you, connect with you? What's the best spot? Sure. So the best place is to connect with me is on Instagram at acquiring underscore wisdom. You'll be able to find me there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Brian, for being on the show and uh, congrats on the success. I'm excited to hear more about your Jamaica developments as well. Thank you. Thank you. Again, glad to be here and hopefully I was able to add value to your listeners. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.